Welcome back to Beat Seeker. I'm your host, Matt McButter. In each episode, we explore the shifting world of music with world-renowned experts and artists to take you deep, deep inside the fascinating and changing world of music technology and music discovery. And I'm your host, Mike Weider, reminding you to subscribe in Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating if you like the episode. You can visit our website at beatseeker.fm where you'll find plenty of rabbit holes with extra content to dive into, guest backgrounds, and even a playlist with music recommendations from each of our guest episodes. Also, Beatseeker swag. You can stay current and talk to us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at BeatseekerPod. One of the things we discussed in our recent year-end wrap-up was Web3, or what many people call simply crypto. Web3 was a major music tech story in 2021, and it will continue to develop over 2022. But Web3 is more than just crypto. It has the potential to radically disrupt the existing business models for music and enable fans to become partial owners of songs versus just passive listeners. To help us wrap our heads around this tech and to help separate the hype from reality, Bruno Guez joins us from Jerusalem, Israel. Bruno is the founder of Revelator, a digital asset and blockchain-based distribution platform for creative IP. Revelator transforms creative IP, like music, into digital assets to unlock the value of tomorrow's Web3 ownership economy. He also has over 25 years experience as a seasoned digital music executive working with Island Records and Cirque du Soleil. Bruno, welcome to Beat Seeker. Thank you, Matt. Hi, Mike. Great to meet you all. Yeah, great to have you. So Bruno, there's been a huge amount of hype in the market about crypto and how it will revolutionize everything from the internet to our financial system. But we'd like to chat with you about the implications to music. There have been a ton of announcements about creator coins, NFTs, and Spotify killers like Audius. We were wondering if you could help us separate what's real from what's hype. So to set the stage, what do you think are the most promising impacts of crypto on the music ecosystem? So I look at the opportunity as you know, Web3, as opposed to crypto, uh, really providing the ability you know, for new business models and you know, transfer, digital transformation, you know, whether it's kind of the internet as we know it, or the way we transact peer to peer, or even you know intellectual property and content, you know being a new digital asset class. Um, I look at you know I deal with music IP all the time. That's kind of my work and my career for 25 years, and I think music is hugely undervalued and hugely undermonetized. And I think these new types of you know peer to peer transactions will really unlock the the value and liquidity around you know music ip so i i think we're on the you know on the cusp of something great and we're starting to see you know a lot of new you know use cases and business models come along come along uh i think it's in a really exciting time to be in music and i believe the you know creators will be the beneficiaries of this transformation and do you think that there are elements of this Web3 or of this kind of crypto revolution that have been overhyped? I do. And it's kind of normal normal with any innovation cycle. Um, but, you know, the price, you know, prices of NFTs will find its fair market value and things will reset. But once they do, you know, people will already have been, you know, part of a new... Uh, protocol, a new understanding, a new paradigm 
in the way we collect art, the way we consume art, the way we, you know, share and transact and monetize art. And, you know, moving forward, I believe that, you know, art and music will find its fair value. Music is interesting because it's a little different than art. Art doesn't have any cash flow. You know, music has royalties, that's cash flow. So when you're talking about digital assets that are backed by revenue, I think there's a real opportunity to do something really meaningful in terms of providing more liquidity or access or democratizing access to IP, meaning that, you know, both fans and potential investors can actually become participants, you know, fractional owners of both, you know, uh, income streams or, you know, assets that are being traded. That's unique. Art is speculative as it is, you know, off-chain as it is in the real world. And, you know, the price is really based on what the buyer wants to spend. You know, once you have an asset that has cash flows, you can actually understand, you know, the valuation of that IP. And I think music will benefit from, you know, being on-chain and finding, you know, new uh, protocols to participate in, new liquidity protocols, whether it's DeFi or NFTs, I think will be, you know, finding new ways of valuing music. So Bruno, you mentioned that you felt that music was potentially under monetized. And, and as you probably have also heard, there's, you know, there's been a lot of complaints from artists in the transition to digital that they feel like they're not being fairly compensated or they're not making much money from royalties. Um, you know, the big names seem to be doing pretty well, but everybody else, not, not so much. Um, you know, to, to reinforce this complainer case, if you compare, you know, professional sports leagues, which I realize is a very different thing, but, you know, like the NBA or NFL artists take, or the athletes take roughly 50% of revenues, whereas in music, the artists take roughly 12%. And, you know, how do you think that crypto or Web3, you know, this new technologies might reset that or have a, an economic impact to artists that would improve their their situation, allow them to live from their craft? It's a very good point. The way I look at, you know, uh, blockchain-based application is the creator is the platform. So right now, you know, Spotify is the platform. That's where the value is. It's in kind of being in between the content and, you know, the consumers. In Web3, there is no middleman. You know, the creator is the platform and they interact with their audience and their fans and their consumers directly. I think we will see, you know, the creators capture a, a lot more value than in current, you know, models today. And how do you think that might come about? You think that that's about NFTs or that's about some other type of um, business model that, that we haven't seen yet today? But what are the maybe some specific examples of how you think that may come to pass? Yeah, I mean, obviously, NFTs are just, you know, the, the word of the day right now. Everyone's buzzing on that, and tomorrow I'll be something else. You know, whether they're fungible or non-fungible assets, I think you can deal with, you know, IP and fractionalization of IP just fine. You know, it doesn't have to be non-fungible. But at the end of the day, the opportunity is really for um, companies like ourselves, for example, that are able to bridge, you know, the divide for content owners who don't know anything about blockchain who are not interested necessarily about the technology, but they want to be able to access you know, these new protocols and these new marketplaces and these new applications and be able to tap into and monetize their 
IPN UA. So yes, today we're talking about NFT marketplaces. That's what everyone's excited about. A ton of money is being raised, you know, for NFT marketplaces, but there are a ton of other use cases, you know, with, whether it's DeFi protocols and lending and staking and swapping and borrowing. And if you have IP, it's got a value and you could potentially use it as collateral to borrow against it. People do that with Bitcoin and other assets. So there's a lot of new use cases that are not even being talked about yet in the you know music or creator community. Everyone's right now just buzzing on NFT because that's what everyone's doing. Tomorrow it'll be something else. <laughs> right. Well, m- music royalties and music IP has been such a hot investment category lately. Uh, Hypnosis Song Fund, for example, the UK-based company, has been gobbling up catalogs since its founding in 2018. Uh, in fact, they've raised almost 1.3 billion pounds to buy rights from all these high-profile artists, Neil Young, Shakira, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Soundgarden. Last I looked, their catalog totaled more than 57,000 songs. And we also, we recently interviewed uh, Michael McCarty, who runs Kilometer Music Group here in Canada. Um, and they've been acquiring stakes in the rights to Canada's formidable roster of hitmakers like Drake and The Weeknd and Justin Bieber. And their fund is just, their fund has been, you know, amazing to sort of watch grow. And they now co-own something like 10% of the hundred most streamed songs of all time and 7% of songs with a billion or more streams on Spotify. And so these are pretty amazing investments in, you know, from my perspective, and they're going to probably attract more, you know, high net worth individuals or more sophisticated investors rather than your everyday music fan. So one of the promises of Web3, I, I suppose, is, you know, shared ownership model where fans have the potential to participate in this upside um, and the upside success of the artists that they love and some of that, some of those royalties. So do you think that this is going to come to pass? And if so, wondering if you could maybe Walk us through how that might happen. I mean, it's true that, you know, more than $10 billion of institutional capital has been invested in music IP in the last five years. You know, royalties, you know, each year right now sits around $39, $40 billion a year and, you know, annual revenue from music royalties. But when you look at the value of music, like if you're looking at, multiples of anywhere between 15, 20 to 30 X, you know, on cash flows, it means that the you know, market value of music IP is sitting somewhere around $700 billion, you know? Hmm. So I believe, you know, music assets are a multi-trillion dollar opportunity mm-hmm. and mu- music is a massive untapped asset class. Um, and we're just at the beginning of seeing this, you know, unlock, you know, of, music IP in more ways uh, than only being available to institutional capital or private equity or funds that actually have, you know, the manpower to deal with valuation models and the ability to raise money. And, you know, we'll start to see people raise money through DAOs, you know, distributed, you know, distributed autonomous organizations where people can pull together and you know, come together to create a fund. You know, a thousand people can put up money and now they can buy, you know, something that's you know, valuable that they couldn't afford on their own, things like that. So the whole idea of you know, fract- fractional ownership and shared ownership model is an amazing opportunity for people to participate in what the web has to offer. 
you know, what, you know, creators have to offer, whether it's art or music or other, you know, generative content or, you know, motion graphics. I mean, there's a lot of great things out there. Um, I do think the issue is going to be around securitization. You know, I don't believe that the regulators are just going to make it easy for anyone to just buy into fractional ownership without, you know, being flagged as a security. We're already starting to see some, you know, headways, you know, in the U.S. with Thongvest, you know, who just had their first, you know, Reg A issuance and, you know, uh, allowing them to, uh, you know, with the SEC's approval, basically be able to sell shares of Thong. That's a great, you know, uh, step forward. Uh, we still don't have, you know, tokenized security exchanges in the U.S. Uh, or in other parts of the world that are regulated. I believe Switzerland is the first one. You know, Six Digital Group, SDX, is the first tokenized security exchange that's regulated by the Swiss regulators. So for the meantime, in the U.S., we will not see, you know, the SEC approve a blockchain-based exchange for securities, which is a shame because mm -hmm. they're, I think, afraid of, they're afraid of it and they're, trying to kind of prevent what's inevitably going to happen. Do you think that they're afraid or just that the, the laws were created many decades ago and never contemplated this sort of technology? Both. Both. Yeah. So it so, takes time for regulation to catch up with what's actually happening in, the, in the, the digital marketplace. But I don't think, you know, once the genie's out of the bag, I don't think you're going to be able to regulate decentralization. So even if you do regulate the digital dollar, digital euro, digital yuan, you know, and, and have central bank digital currencies that are regulated and that are stable coins, ultimately, yes, all, you know, the Fed, all the central governments and banks uh, are going to want to regulate their currency, you know, to control supply, to know what transactions are being done, et cetera. But at the end of the day, decentralization is here to stay, even mm -hmm. if there's more regulation. I think, you know, there will be more and more decentralized exchanges that operate, you know, below the radar. So I'm I'm really still trying to wrap my head around this Web3 and, and how all of this stuff works. But if I think if I understand what you were saying about you, you, you mentioned the, the DAOs or the Distributed Autonomous Organization, uh, one of those could be uh, could sort of be established with, you know, tens, hundreds, thousands of people, and then that distributed or decentralized organization could be what acquires rights or fractional rights to a catalog. And then the the participants in that distributed autonomous organization or DAO would be the beneficiaries of of the royalties. And but what's what the hurdle is right now to to setting that up is more regulatory than um, than it is technical. Is that correct? Uh, I don't think it's a regu regulatory issue. I think there's starting to be more precedent for you know, what's the legal version or equivalent of a DAO, right? And I think um, Wyoming, if I'm not mistaken, is the first state you know, to be able to provide you know, an LLC equivalent for a DAO. Okay. I believe Delaware is not too far behind. And I saw you know, recently, uh, just a few days ago, Anderson Horowitz you know, published uh, an amazing um, white paper kind of document on um, the legal aspects of a DAO, you know, from taxation and 
you know, all the things that you would want to know as a business owner, if you're operating a DAO, you know, what's the liability. So there's more and more, you know, um, legal work, legal mind trying to kind of push forward, you know, on making DAOs kind of the future of work, the way people, you know, collectives come together, you know, businesses operate in a more distributed manner. And I do believe that will just become part of the way we do business. Right. Uh, the members, you know, the members of the DAOs ultimately have a certain amount of governance and voice in the protocols in those DAOs. Uh, and that gives them a sense of ownership, but also voting power. They can vote on initiatives and proposals. So I believe in this community governance, you know, will become something great, even for music and musicians and labels. If you can have the audience participate in understanding, you know, the direction you need to take or, you know, what single should I put out next week? Who wants to vote on that, et cetera? I think we're going to see something that's a lot more collaborative. So it sounds like there's kind of two paths. If we sort of think about the problem is we want fan ownership of music in some more democratized way is that the the paths forward, I guess, that you're painting are um, one, I could sort of join a club or DAO where I team up with my friends or people on the internet to put our money together and then we buy these assets. And there's potentially some issues around the legalities of the DAOs, but that are slowly getting resolved. The second path, though, is the secu- to turn a song or even an artist into a token so that I would have a you know, Drake coin, or I would have an individual song as a token that people could buy either fractional ownership or complete ownership, like an NFT. Um, are, it, does that kind of sum it up? Is, are those really the two pathways? And, and the latter sounds like it's the most problematic legally, because that would run you into the SEC, because they'd sort of say, well, if you're turning Drake into a token, well, then, you know, that's like a stock issuance or you're that's like a stock. And so you're going to be have to do an IPO or whatever other legalities of, that they would have to do in the traditional finance world. Not necessarily, because a creator coin could be purely you know, a governance token with rewards for the fan base and not be deemed a security. You know, it's considered a security if there's an investment component to it. And you could argue that the value of the creator coin is going to go up and people expect to make money on it. But I think the difference is that it becomes a, you know, useful to the fans because they actually get access to exclusive content or to, you know, live streams or by holding. Even NFT can be used in this way where they can provide access or provide, you know, um, proof, you know, of, um, there is a, a specific name for this protocol where proof of attendance, for example, I went to the show, I have the NFT, now I have a proof of attendance, and I get to unlock things, right? I get to unlock right. the exclusive video, the next single, the backstage pass or whatever. If Those it's used as a sort of golden right? ticket type of thing, then it's then it's not sure. necessarily a security. If it's used to sort of speculate on or gain royalties from, then clearly it would kind of be looking more like a security. Sure. Yeah. And if it's a coin and it's, you know, it's currency, then it's probably more likely to be a security. Uh, but again, sometimes, you know, Bitcoin is not considered a currency. It's considered an asset. So it depends how you spend the, you sure. know, the, you know what sure. your asset is. 
Well, maybe this would be a good time to um, learn a little bit more about Revelator and what your company is doing to facilitate this uh, move to Web3. Can you can you walk us through, um, you know, maybe what's the what's the problem that you're trying to solve and, and why you founded the company? Sure. So at the end of the day, you know, we're democratizing access to music IP. And we do that by offering a state of the art platform for both, you know, music, music businesses that need to, you know, track income, collect royalties, get to market, monetize their assets, et cetera. But then we provide them a bridge, you know, to web free protocols that they can actually take advantage of, take my song, take my visual art and turn it into a digital asset, tokenize it ultimately, you know, be able to kind of start using smart contracts and split the rights with the collaborators or participants in that IP and start collecting, you know, revenue royalty on chain. So the idea is to actually be able to pay people faster. We're trying to kind of advance you know, music payments, both in the sense of, you know, how fast people get paid, but also in terms of providing advances against future earnings. Uh, we do that by basically looking at streaming data, which we have, which we collect every day from the top platforms, then we can extrapolate, you know, the value, you know, of the earnings from yesterday's streams that are going to be payable in 60 days, 90 days, et cetera. And we can actually bridge the funding gap between the time the song played online yesterday and the contract pays out in a couple months. And instead of waiting for that money to come in in a couple of months, you can actually draw down and take an advance, basically take the cash out of yesterday's streams, you know, that are going to be payable in a couple of months. Okay. Uh, we do that by basically, you know, having all that data on chain and then being able to allow people to see the you know pipeline revenue and be able to take an advance against that. Okay, so just so I understand it, um, today the way it works is that um, there's a bunch of plays on Spotify, let's say, or some other streaming platforms, and that would generate revenue to me as an artist whose song was played. And But there's a big time delay between when all those plays happen or streams happen, and then it goes to some collection agency who then calculates what are the splits of revenue or ownership amongst the various constituents, the artist, their record label, the producer, et cetera. And that whole flow and process takes months, you know, and is a very manual process, I guess. And so what you're doing is kind of making this electronic through Web3 technology such that it happens in a much faster way. Is that is that basically it? Yeah, and it's not only collection agencies that could be distributors and labels that receive data from you know online streaming platforms like Spotify, Amazon, you know, Deezer, Google, YouTube, uh, and so on. Uh, so there's two parts to it, right? One is there's a traditional kind of B2B you know, music business platform that deals with tracking income and collecting royalties, structuring financial data, dealing with financial reporting of data, and then automatically distributing those royalties to rights holders. What we're doing now with you know, original works, which is our you know, protocol for bringing music IP on chain, is ultimately paying a smart contract. Instead of paying people, we're actually making payments to the smart contract, which is a registered song on the blockchain. And that smart contract could have one person, it could have 21 people. So at the end of the day, everyone's getting paid much faster. Those financial transactions are posted and recorded on the ledger. Everyone can see, you know, transparently when those payments happen 
and everyone, you know, share in that song, pro rata share in that song, um, in a way that's never been done before. Now we can actually make those payments every day. Got it. And so just to define a spark contract for people who might not know what that means, is it basically that today, you know, there may be some legality today of Matt would get royalty X, Mike would get royalty Y, Bruno would get royalty Z. What's your, with a smart contract, you're taking that formula and basically encoding that into software so that it's programmatically kind of executing on that distribution, just as a simple example. Is that is that basically it? Absolutely. It's an application that runs on a blockchain and executes the rules that are encoded in that contract. Uh, most of contracts are not that smart at the end of the day. You know, they control the wallet address and the pro rata share percentage uh, that needs to be split. So at its most basic form, it's who gets paid and how much. But then okay. you can actually prog- program those contracts to be a lot smarter if you want to have certain triggers or certain rules that are more, you know, uh, programmable in the way your business runs. Got it. So we started, you know, out talking a little bit about these more higher level concepts of changing the economics, I guess, for artists or for fans to enable their potential ownership in 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 music. Is what you're doing, could we sort of look at it as maybe more foundational technology or building blocks to help you get to that point? So today you're using it to make contract execution faster, but is this a building block or a stepping stone maybe that could help bridge us to this larger vision of a more democratized, decentralized music ecosystem? I do think it's going to take time for the music ecosystem to be more decentralized. There are you know, inherent challenges with that, you know, the way the majors work, the way rights organizations work. So I'm not sure if we're going to get there quickly, but I do believe that the independence will lead the way. And, you know, the more they have access to, you know, tooling uh, and Web3 protocol access, then they're going to be able to experiment and enjoy, you know, some of the new benefits for some of these, you know, protocols, uh, whether they're and, and NFTs or DeFi, etc. I do think what we're doing right now with Revelator is really building this deep integration, you know, with the music supply chain, rights management, you know, business intelligence, adding predictive analytics to really facilitate this financial layer and valuation and underwriting and settlement. So all the due diligence, which normally takes a lot of time, you have to gather all the data, analyze all the data, you know, push all the data into your models, understand the value of IP. All that takes weeks. The moment you actually connect all the pipes, you know, from traditional revenue pipes, you know, and into, you know, cloud systems, BI systems, you know, algorithms, and then push that on chain, you've, you know, ultimately reduced the time it takes to understand the value of a song, the value of a work, or the value of an artist. And if you can automate that, then that means you can actually start looking at much faster cash flow cycles and, you know, faster velocity and in, in music assets. Hmm. Certainly an interesting problem, and we look forward to uh, you know continuing to follow Revelator and uh, and seeing seeing what you're doing. So, Bruno, we, we like to uh, ask all of our guests if they have a music recommendation. So, tell us uh, what are you listening to lately? Oh wow, it's like asking you know. I mean, I listened to seven thousand artists last year. 
you know, I studied ethnomusicology at UCLA, so I love music just like Picasso loves color, you know? Mm-hmm. But um, let me see. I, I'll tell you real quickly what I, some of the most recent things that I am enjoying uh, from, you know, African music to, you know, to classical, to jazz, to, you know, hip hop and dance music. Um, just, just even one, yeah, yeah, one artist that kind of sticks out right now. You know, that's sort of off the top of your head. I mean, I wake up listening to Brazilian music generally. I like mm-hmm. to start my day kind of, you know, slow, slow and and soft. Um, I'm really enjoying a lot of soul music, like you know, Esther Phillips, or I'm listening to, you know, Jimmy Scott. I'm listening to uh, Charlie Bird. I'm listening to a lot of jazz lately. I'm also listening to a lot of Stevie Wonder, uh, but I'm also listening to you know, more modern things as well. Uh, I have a few favorite radio stations that I love, uh, specifically Radio Nova in Paris. I'm discovering quite a lot of music. I have been for the last 20 years there. Um, but I would say it really depends, you know, on how I feel that day on, on my mood, right? Sure. So it could be Bebo it could, it could Valdez. It could be in a Cuban mood. And listen to, you know, some some Angolan music. It depends. That's great. That's some great variety. And I'm I'm uh, I'm very much the same way. So if our listeners would like to follow you or your work, um, we'll put a link to uh, Revelator, of course, in the show notes. But if they'd like to follow you or your work, where should they go? I mean Revelator.com is a good place to start to kind of discover what we're doing. You know, the original works website and kind of see what we're doing with the wallet. Um, you know, we're on Twitter, get revelator is the handle. Um, I think that's probably a good place to start. Okay. Well, we'll put some links in the show notes and, uh, want to thank you so much for, uh, being on Beatseeker today. That's great. Enjoy the conversation. Thank you guys. You've been listening to Beatseeker with your hosts, Matt McButter and Mike Wider. If you like the show, go to Apple podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. While you're there, leave us a rating and a comment and share it with your friends and colleagues. If you want to dig deeper into this content, visit beatseeker.fm. That's B-E-A-T seeker.fm. And if you want to be part of the show, check out our Patreon link. Interact with us on social media at BeatseekerPod. Beatseeker is recorded in the Devil Lake Studios and the Tunnel Under Arundel. The show is produced by Matt McButter, Mike Wider, and Kate McCartney. Tim Ratledge is our editor. Thanks for tuning in and keep seeking.